Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely surrounded by the Grog Squad. This is Virtual Grog Meet, an online convention that's supposed to be online. Uh, the first Virtual Grog Meet was five years ago, uh, when all we had were two cups on the end of a very long string. But it was an event that launched a dozen online gaming groups, and now everyone's at it. I'm in the Zoom of role-playing rambling with a very special guest, Tim Harford. Hello, Tim. Hello, Dirk. Now, here on my left, I've got my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. Would you like to give it a tap? Tim? Oh, I need, need quite long arms, but I'll, I'll just, I'm, I'm, sending, I'm sending the thought waves. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Tapped it. Oh, okay, here we go. Let's see. Uh, the eternal champion appears. Oh, look, she's appeared with Dusty Bin uh, <laughs> as a presenter, the eternal champion as a presenter on 321. Three, two, one. Yeah, could you do three, two, one? Oh, I did it the wrong way around. Well, you're ah. good with numbers, aren't you? You're good with numbers, so that that's why that's appeared. So that's good. So you're you're a broadcaster, columnist, economist, best-selling author, podcaster, and role player. What did you put on your census return? Oh, definitely role player. That's the, <laughs> that's the way forward. And that's what we're going to talk to you about uh, today. I've been reading your book, The Undercover Economist, a great book about the invisible hand of the economy and how it shapes our lives. I, I can't find the chapter about what happens to a small town when a group of adventurers arrive with 5,000 gold pieces taken from a dungeon. It's, it's a good one. There's a guy called Ed Castronova. He wrote about 15 years ago a book about... Uh, virtual worlds, virtual economies. And he was particularly interested in games such as, uh, I think, EverQuest and then World of Warcraft. And he wanted to understand how economies worked by doing things like dumping a massive infusion of magic items into a game such as World of Warcraft and, and seeing what a difference it made. And his idea was you could have different servers with different rules, so different money supply or different supply of items. And the idea would be that you would able to, you could run experiments and see what happened, which it's not so easy to do, to do in the real world. Um, so I feel that Castronova is the guy who would really be able to answer this, but I'll, I'll give it a go. It's pretty simple. If a bunch of adventurers show up with a load of cash, prices are going to go up in the short run because they've got so much cash. There's so few things they can spend the money on. But I would expect the, there'd be a supply response so people would be flocking to wherever the adventurers were. They'd just be surrounded by hangers-on. It's a little bit like if you're a tourist in a country that's, that's very poor. You're just constantly being surrounded by people trying to sell you stuff. So I imagine, that, I imagine you'd see this inflation. You'd see people trying to rip the, the tourists off. But there would also be this experience of, of just being surrounded by people trying to sell you anything, possibly with no idea whatsoever of what an adventurer would really want. So that, yeah, that's just a guess. Excellent. So we're going to talk about your life uh, as a role player and your first, last and everything. So we always start our interviews by asking about your first game experience. What was the, what, what did you play and who were you playing with? 
So I was playing with a guy called Richard Till, who uh, I hadn't been in touch with for at least 35 years, but he he lived on the next street over. Uh, he used to live in Chesterfield. So um, just sort of on the borders between the North and the Midlands. And that's where my early gaming experiences were. And I remember Richard explaining to me one day about these things called role-playing games. And of course, I just couldn't understand a word he was saying. I was like, what is it? Is it like on a computer? Has it got a board? You know, the, the same conversations I think everybody has until they've actually seen a game played. Um, but the game that Richard was into was Tunnels and Trolls. Uh, and so we, he ran a game for me. And I mean, this game, I really enjoyed it, but he, he was grumpy. He thought I hadn't played it very well or I'd talked too much or something. So, so it was a slightly unsatisfying experience because I, you know, I enjoyed myself and then he was kind of cross with me because I'd done it wrong in some way. I don't know. Solo adventures. So I could just play by myself, get really used to the rules. Tons and Trolls is all about rolling buckets of dice. It's really good for your mental arithmetic. It's probably made me the nerd I am today. But fortunately, I had, I think Richard was a couple of years older than me, but I had kids in my own class who, it was very easy to persuade them to start playing. So I started running games for them and they'd run games. And so fortunately I never had that, that agony of just desperately wanting someone to play with. Cause I had, there was a ready supply of like-minded folk. So yeah, Tiles and Trolls was the first game. So those um, solo adventures uh, that you, you, you went for, do you, do you remember which one, uh, which one of those uh, sticks in your mind? One of the sticks in my mind, cause it was so compact was Goblin Lake which was a micro adventure. I mean, it was about 12 pages long and, and how many paragraphs it had, but somehow managed to, you're supposed to be a goblin and you get into this underground complex of goblins and you, you can fight and become their chief or you can get thrown into the, the trash pile or whatever. There was just so much going on in such a small, small space, of, you know, space of uh, kind of real estate. Very, very different from, say, um, the Warlock of Firetop Mountain, which obviously is fighting fantasy rather than Tunnels and Trolls, but I had that as well. And that just felt like this incredibly long, complicated, like you could never get to the end. There's no way you'd ever be able to finish it. That's how I felt. There's Goblin Lake you could play through in about five minutes, and then you'd kind of go back and you'd play it again in a different way, and there were just all sorts of different possible ways to play it. But the other one that really sticks in my mind is Overkill, which... Uh, there was something quite tactical about that one. So I think you were you were on a mission to assassinate a necromancer called Marionarsis. You had to break into his castle and and just and just take the guy out. And there were lots and lots of different ways to do it. That was quite high level. I think it was a Michael Stackpole adventure. Mm-hmm. But there were loads. I mean, I had loads, and I I loved them all. They were quite varied. Tunnels and Trolls is quite eclectic. Never really had a vision of, uh, you know, a really sort of Tight, tightly plotted, gritty universe. It was just anything goes in Tolls and Trolls. It was great fun. Yes, absolutely, uh, including orcs in zoot suits with violin cases and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah the whole thing. I mean, Liz Danforth, who you've identified, she had this put this real visual stamp on it, so it was distinctive in that way. But other than that, it was it was a game that just didn't take itself too seriously. It was great fun. So you started with uh, TNT. What did you move on to? What were the other games that you were playing at the time? So the the next game that I picked up was I think I picked up Basic Dungeons and Dragons at some stage. The the Red Box, 
uh, with, uh, I think it's a Larry Elmore, is that a mm. painting with the, the sort of barbarian fighting the big red dragon? And it was fine, but I never really got into to D&D. But I picked up, after reading an advert in White Dwarf, I picked up uh, the first book of Dragon Warriors. And that I just found completely spellbinding because it was, it was quite simple to play, but it had a little bit more to it than Tolls and Trolls, which really was just roll lots of dice and get a big number. But the, the really great thing about Dragon Warriors was there was this real sense of, it wasn't anything goes. There, there was this world and the world had certain rules and it was quite similar to your vision of a, of a medieval world, but with folk tales and the, the goblins would be really potentially quite eerie. They wouldn't be these sort of comic figures. They could, they could cast a spell on you. Um, and yeah, I just, it showed me that role-playing games could be, could be a bit more serious in a good way than, than Tolls and Trolls. And I, I do remember just reading this thing and thinking, this is amazing. This is a fantastic game. We covered, uh, we covered it uh, recently and uh, returning to the mechanics, um, it, I think it struck us that it wasn't the uh, mechanics that uh, we remembered. It was the appeal of the uh, world that it was set in and all the, the, the just the writing is very, uh, very rich, isn't it? And uh, rewarding. Yeah, I, I remember listening to, um, I'm really going to date myself, listening to Enya's Watermark um which is obviously a, one of the greatest albums of all time um well certainly for for role playing it's got that celtic sensibility to it and i was reading possibly book 4 i can't remember but the the monster descriptions in book 4 and li- and watermark was going on in the background i wasn't really paying any attention to it but it was setting the mood and i was reading the description of the boggart and the boggart had uh, had wine dark eyes and now I'm a grown-up and I realise that's a reference to Homer over the wine-dark sea. Because I had no idea about Homer when I was 12 or 13 years old and reading this book. But I just thought, wow, that's, uh, that's wine-dark eyes. is quite a striking image. And it was full of that stuff and, and just really, really cast a spell. Uh, Adam uh, Rosser uh, kindly sent me an edition of uh, More or Less that you did about role playing, you managed to sneak it, sneak it in uh, <laughs> around the time of uh, Gary Gygax uh, passing away, and yeah. uh, you spoke to Michael Gove, which I'm sorry, sorry about that. You have my sympathies, and uh, Ian Livingstone, and you were talking about, as you said, the educational influence of uh, RPGs and how it, you know it captured a particular period of time and educated people in a particular way. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember much about, I mean, I remember meeting Gove and Ian Livingston. And Michael Gove, I have to say, was, this is about 2008, I think, when Gary Gygax uh, died. And uh, so Gove was very charming and, and great fun on the radio. Uh, and uh, this is all, you know, before everything that's happened in the last five years. And, uh, but obviously I was meeting Ian Livingston, so I was a bit starstruck. And they were, they were, they were both great, but we were trying to, to convey to people who might or might know who Gary Gygax was or what role-playing was, a little bit of this in about six minutes, which is quite tricky. But in the end, we did point out that there's, there's just a lot, of, a lot of maths in these games. Um, I seem to remember Dungeons & Dragons had a, a diagram of a bell curve when you roll 3D6. And just the, the for me, I mean, it's not super complicated, but the constant low-level exposure 
to maths, the mental arithmetic and tolls and trolls. I mean, tolls and trolls, you just, you know, you just got to roll 10 dice and add them up. And you start to, to be able to do that really fast because otherwise it's going to take ages to play. Um, that, I think, builds your confidence in, in handling numbers and handling mathematics. Um, and you're motivated to do it. And it's fun to do it. You want to do it. It doesn't feel like work. Uh, but you very quickly acquire that fluency. I think that, that probably is important. Yeah. And, and also it has uh, impact on your reading list as well, doesn't it? So it expands uh, your knowledge that way as well, doesn't it, in, in terms of history and uh, literature? Yeah. You, you, you want to pick up all of this stuff and, and figure out the, what happened in great battles or what a castle was like. Although I do remember my father picking up some of these solo Tolls and Trolls adventures and uh, uh, some of them, I have to say, had uh, th- nudity and adult themes. Uh, I guess I was about, you know, a thirteen-year-old boy, and actually, I don't remember being particularly fascinated by uh, pictures of naked ladies drawn by Liz Danforth. I mean, I must have been, but I don't. I don't remember it being particularly interesting. But my, I remember my dad sort of having a word with me that you know maybe I should stick to the books that you know, d- didn't have naked ladies in them um and there was plenty of that as well and and so where were you um buying your games at this time where, where, where did you where did you pick them up so it, it would be a, a special treat to to get to go to games workshop in sheffield so it was a, a branch of games workshop probably only about 10 branches in the country at the time on the moor which is this big pedestrian I mean, which the moor sounds terrific it's actually it's pedestrianized sprawl in the middle of sheffield um, I don't know. It's probably delightful now. It's probably been reshaped. Um, but I, I just love to go there and, and browse. And this was a time, of course, when Games Workshop were, weren't just selling miniatures. They'd be selling all sorts of games. You pick up the Games Workshop catalogue and it would just be all of these games that you couldn't possibly afford by these mysterious people. Judges Guild. I don't know who those guys are, but this, this sounds amazing. Thieves World. This sounds amazing. Uh, and just... So that was the place. The other one was um, Forever People in Bristol because my grandparents uh, on both sides lived in the Bristol area. And so I would, uh, when we'd go to to visit my grandparents in, they live fairly centrally in Bristol. uh, And I could could walk down to Forever People in about 20, 30 minutes. Um, And it used to be on this very, it's it's not there anymore. I think it's still in Bristol, but it's not in the centre it used to be on this very steep hill that I can't remember the name of um, that goes down towards the cathedral in, in Bristol um, and very, very sort of atmospheric place. And you walk down this very, very steep hill and you'd buy your games or games. You buy one because that's all you could afford on your pocket money. And then you turn around, and you walk back up the hill and it was just wonderful to, to browse there. Yeah, we didn't have the online stuff. It was uh, it, it was one of those myth, mythic places, uh, forever people that you saw in the back of uh, White Dwarf. They had a, a zombie, I think, on the uh, advert, and I always wanted to go just to. It, yeah, and it sounded amazing. Yeah, no, it was it was great. I, I had a conversation once with. I bought a solo adventure, and I think it was, it was three quid, and I think, I think my pocket money at the time was thirty pence, and I didn't have a paper round at the time, so I basically spent ten weeks' income on this three quid game book. And I think there was a, they were having a conversation with an adult customer and I sort of bought this and I'd, I'd said I'd spent 10 weeks pocket money on this. And he turned to the guy and he said, 
why don't you come in here and spend 10 weeks income on my stuff like <laughs> this young gentleman is doing? So, yeah. But that, that was it. That was all you wanted to spend your, your, your money on was games. Well, what else was there to, to spend money on when you were 12 or 13 years old? And bring it to the current day. So uh, you're still role-playing. You're still actively role-playing. So what was the last game uh, that you played? Yeah. So unlike you, Dirk, I never really gave it up. So just sort of kept through. One of the um, one of the wonderful things that happened to me was when I was about 20, I met uh, Dave Morris, who is with Oliver Johnson, was the, the co-creator of Dragon Warriors. So it was really meeting your heroes but we stay friends and we play in a group together regularly uh so if you've got the opportunity to play games with dave morris you're, just, you're not ever going to quit right you're, you're you've just got to keep that alive so i've been playing really ever since so what was the the so the the we've just finished a, a we've just finished a one-off christmas special <laughs> that ran past easter that was run by uh, a friend of mine aaron and that was using GURPS and set in legend, which is the the uh, the background of Dragon Warriors. So we're still, I think Dave, I think is possibly slightly fed up of playing in legend. Actually, I'm not sure he is, but Dave is very happy to, it's not like he's sitting there going, nope, you must play in my my game world or or nothing. He's very happy to spread his wings and try all sorts of things. But I think a lot of the rest of us still slightly addicted to playing in legend so yeah we had a one-off christmas special that ran ran through till april and then i'm just about to start uh a game using dave's system jewel spider which is still not quite finished but it's it's sort of the sequel to dragon warriors as if you created dragon warriors but you you made it a 21st century game so it wasn't quite so crunchy um, was more interested in the role playing. Was more really brought those elements of mystery and folktale more to the foreground and tried to put them in the rules as well. So that's what we're doing, and it's a um, it's a quest for uh, it's sort of a Grail quest. It's but the what the Grail actually is, and whether it's the kind of thing that you might ever want to find. Um, well, we'll see. But it's a slightly slightly ambiguous Grail with slightly ambiguous folk trying to get hold of it. I know that when uh, we were speaking to Dave, he was saying that he wasn't quite sure where his rules ended and your improvisation started. Uh, and so, so, so what stage is uh, Jill Spider in at the moment? Yeah, no, I'm slightly, I'm slightly irritated because I thought, well, look, we'll, we're still playtesting it. So um, I'm going to pick up Jill Spider and I'll use this, although the rules aren't quite finished because we need to sort of, Need to, you know, we owe it to Dave to playtest the rules. And then I turned to the magic system, and the magic system is still kind of, it's all in red and footnotes, <laughs> and oh, maybe it'll be a bit like, and I'm like, Dave, is this? Am I going to have to write your magic system for you? So um, anyway, I'm trying to put something together that works, uh, but it's not easy for for Legend because it has got that real sense of of mystery. And so you don't, I mean, a lot of magic systems have this problem. You don't want them to, to be too codified. You want it to, to be a bit mysterious and a bit unpredictable. But then when you say that, as a game designer, you're basically saying, you know, I don't know, you know, let's see what let's see what happens. So I I, I understand why Dave is possibly slightly hesitating 
to put anything down on, on paper because the moment you put it down on paper, you're saying it's this way and it's not that way. And actually you, you want to preserve that mystery. And that's always the challenge, isn't it, with uh, magic systems, whether you have something that is free form that actually breaks everything else um, or whether you have something that's rigidly codified. And there's, there's I guess there's a, a balance both ways because players do like to have spell lists, don't they, to rub against. And uh, it, I think uh, Robin Law says it's kind of a, a, a shopping list to pick from. Yeah. Uh, and people enjoy that, don't they? Wait, they do. There are a couple of, of ideas that I found interesting. What I went back to Ars Magica, which is a game that people really rate, but I never, I never played it at the time. I got some supplements and I thought they were great, but I never really understood what they were talking about because I didn't have the original rules. And a friend of mine lent me a classic copy of Ars Magica. And that's a really interesting system where it's basically, it's very atmospheric in the way it's described. It's all, all the words are in Latin. But basically, it, you've got nouns and verbs. So a verb might be to create or destroy or to understand. And then the nouns would be um, a spirit or fire or an animal, only all in Latin. And with those building blocks, you're, it, it tells you how good you are at a particular spell that involves those that, that noun and that verb. And there is a spell, there are spell lists but you can also just try and make something up and improvise. And that, I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. That's worth a try. Um, there is another nice um, tweak in Dave's uh, solo, well, actually multiplayer game book, um, Bloodsword, which again is set in legend. The wizards in that system, they can hold spells in mind. Like he's not a classic D&D Vancean mage, You've got a list of spells and you're, you're remembering them. And when you cast them, they're gone. And that's always felt a bit weird. But the way, that, the way it works is the, every spell you hold in mind reduces your spell casting ability. But you can always summon a new spell to mind, but it takes time to do that. So you're kind of, it's a question of how many loaded guns do you want to carry around? If you're carrying too many, one of them is going to go off and, and blow off your own foot. Um, but you want to carry some loaded guns because you don't want to have to be loading the guns when the time comes to the action. So anyway, I'm playing around with all of this stuff, but um, I kind of wish Dave had done it because he's better than I am at this sort of thing. <laughs> I know that one of the systems that you uh, use regularly is GURPS, isn't it? You, you, have you been trying to dismantle GURPS a little as well? Yeah, so GURPS I loved when I first encountered, and I, I think I must have been about 16, 17, and I had the energy to to read everything and to really absorb it and to really know how it worked. And that was GURPS third edition. And I've just been slowly forgetting it for 25 years. I think it's a very Zen process, right? <laughs> this, is, this is what Zen mastery is like. Like I kind of know how it works, but I forget more and more and more details. And the fourth edition came out and all my players read the fourth edition, but I mean, I've got it, but I, I never had time to read it. And people tell me it's similar, but better. So I've got this game that I haven't, I haven't read the latest version of the rules and I keep forgetting the old rules. But in a way, that's working really well because the thing that people love about GURPS is it's got a real logic to it and it's very flexible. You can do lots and lots of things and it, there's a minimum of just stupid stuff or arbitrary stuff in it. Um, but the thing that people hate about GURPS is just so many complexities, so many possible skills, so many permutations. It's just overwhelming. And so... 
uh, GURPS with this sort of um, just constantly knocking off the rough edges because you've been using it over and over and over again. And anything that's too complicated, you can't remember how to do it anyway, so you just don't do it. Um, that I found works really well. And the last game that I um, played before this, this Grail Quest one, so the last game I ran was inspired by Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea trilogy, which is a really terrific background for a role-playing game. Um, and that was a, just a three-page version of GURPS where I, I, we had different attributes, we had different skills, we had different magic rules, but it was basically the GURPS system of you roll three dice. If you roll a three, that's really good. If you roll an 18, that's really bad. It worked. It worked really, really well. And you realize actually like GURPS on one page can probably work and might actually work better than GURPS on 400 pages. Um, but maybe that's just me getting old. Well, we're talking about uh, things that you're doing now. You only just released a, a, a podcast, the uh, Cautionary Tales podcast. And that's a little little different from the other things you do, isn't it? Cautionary Tales. So yeah. th- so, so, for people who don't uh, aren't aware of it, what, what what's the idea behind Cautionary Tales? So I'm really enjoying Cautionary Tales a lot. It's a real creative outlet. Um, Cautionary Tales are they're true stories. And I tell the story. We've got some great actors. We've got composer, sound designer working on, on the podcast. So they, I think they sound really good. Helen Bonham deli- Carter. Helen Bonham Carter. Helena Bonham Carter playing uh, Florence Nightingale. Uh, Jeffrey Wright played Martin Luther King. I mean, Jeffrey Wright giving these Martin Luther King speeches. He just sounds incredible. Helena Bottom Carter um, sounds like she's having so much fun with Florence Nightingale. She's really good. And um, Alan Cumming, um, he, he's been in them. Uh, and, and we've got lesser known actors who are just, they're very, very versatile. They're playing lots and lots of roles across the, across the podcast. So it's really fun to listen to. And the sound design as well. Uh, they're just lots of tiny little, uh, tiny little sort of touches with the sound design. And there'll be a, a popping open of a can of Pepsi just at the moment where something bad happens to the Pepsi Corporation or something like that. So they're great fun to write. I get to, to bring the nerdy social science, the psychology, or uh, this is what a safety engineer would make of how this airship blew up, or this is how an economist would think about this. So, so bringing in ideas from, from social science to explain what happened in the story. And so you've got this interlude where I say, look, what's really going on here is this. And then we go back to the story and all of the cautionary tales, as you might guess, are about things going wrong. Some of them are quite funny. Um, some of them are just awful and tragic. Uh, occasionally they have happy endings. Usually they don't, but they're great fun. Um, the, the most recent one, It'll still be recent, I think, when this uh, this interview airs. But a recent one, which was published uh, mid April, uh, is a cautionary tales about the the original Satanic Panic over Dungeons and Dragons, and specifically the disappearance of uh, James Dallas Egbert, uh, who is this, this poor kid who who disappeared, and then there was this frenzy of speculation. That some it was something to do with Dungeons and Dragons, and so that story is really interesting to explore because you've got this larger-than-life character, William Deere, who's like this private investigator who, who really does a lot to to build up the credibility of this theory that Dungeons and Dragons is involved. You've got extracts from Tom Hanks' Mazes and Monsters, 
Um, and at the same time, you've, you know, you've got me talking in a slightly confessional way about my own hobby and talking about the history of D&D and like what it really is and, you know, and where it came from. And the contrasting that with just the crazy theories people had about this, this poor young man's disappearance. Uh, I mean, really interesting. I, I had no idea, actually, uh, of, of a lot of the details mm. of that story. They are fascinating. Yeah, it, it struck me that the um, person at the centre of it is William Deere himself, isn't he? He's a bit like yeah. uh, uh, Kurt Douglas's character in Ace in the Hall, isn't he? He's that kind of flamboyant um, a journalist who wants to generate stories and uh, be the centre of them. Yeah, and he's he's really creating this whole story. And the, the sound design, I mean, I can, I can be very proud of the sound design on Cautionary Tales because it's nothing to do with me, but the, there's this sort of... Um, you know, funky 1970s theme for William Deere. Every time he comes on, like it, you're, you're right in a um, some kind of 1970s movie or cop show. Um, but yeah, he does crazy things like he hears that maybe Dallas, so there's this, he hears that Dallas Egbert likes to do this kind of dare game where he, called trestling, he lies down on the, on the railroad tracks and, the, and the, lets the train run over him. And apparently this is a thing that maybe he did and so William Deere's like, well, I'll have to give that a try. So he goes and lies down on, on the tracks in front of this train. And you're just thinking, did he, could he really have done that? Did he actually do that? Or did he just, because it's a really sort of weird, interesting, engaging element in his story, did he just claim that he did it? I don't know what's weirder. I don't know whether it's weirder that he did it or weirder that he didn't do it, but he said that he did. I, I don't know. But he's, Yeah. Deere, William Deere is absolutely driving the story. And the, one, there is this amazing moment in which I was not able to, to fully explore in the, in the podcast because there wasn't enough time. But when William Deere has his first experience of what Dungeons and Dragons actually is, he absolutely loves it. So he's like, oh, maybe the guy or maybe the, the dungeon master will be wearing a, a pointy hat or he doesn't know what to expect. Maybe we'll have to go into the steam tunnels. And of course, it's just an ordinary game. Sounds like a really good game. And William Deere has a great time, but he sort of, the way he portrays it, it's like he completely loses his sense of self and he kind of wakes up and the dungeon master's gone and he's there all alone in the room with the dice in front of him on the table. And he's like, maybe, maybe Dallas Egbert just lost his mind playing this game because this game is so good. <laughs> and you're thinking, well, I mean, the, it does sound like it was a good game, but I mean, would you really just zone out so much, didn't even notice that the game master had left? Um, so yeah, it's it's a very strange story indeed. Yeah, and I like it as part of your confessional. You you make the point that this is a, an example of um, democratizing creativity. That it's yeah. it, it make it makes people creative and produce things in, in, in lots of different ways. Absolutely. I mean, if we were to say, oh, you know, go on, you know, get on stage and and act in a in a play or uh, write a book, I think for a lot of people that would be, I mean, people might have the desire to do that, to have that creative outlet in their lives, but it would just seem to be impossible to do that, that the commitment of time and energy. But for a game, you're, you're acting, you're creating, so many gamers write their own rules. That's just totally standard. I mean, how many people would watch a Marvel movie and go, I think I'll write my own script for a Marvel movie. I mean, not many, but loads of people would play Dungeons and Dragons and say, oh, I'll, 
I'm going to modify the rules. I'll hack that about. Or I'll read a published scenario and I'll make my own scenario up. It's just completely standard. It's, it's, it, I think we start to take it for granted because we're all hobbyists and we love this game. If you take a step back and look at the level of creativity that's required to run a game or to play a game versus what most people are habitually asked to create in the course of their lives, which is not very much, sadly. I mean, I think it is remarkable. So, yeah, so the the, the podcast uh, is available, and I do encourage people to uh, listen to it. I really enjoyed it. And like you, I, I learned some new things. I, I actually got um, uh, the, the book here. Never read it. He, did, he went on to uh, do uh, stuff about O.J. Simpson as well, didn't he, William Deere? He, yeah, he did. He did He did a book called O.J. Simpson is, is Innocent and I Can Prove It. And then I think he... <laughs> I think he did another one that said Simpson was was guilty. I, I got confused. He did um, Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction, which was a, a TV show. Uh, so yeah, I mean, he's a he's a very interesting character. He's still he's still alive. He's still going. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but the the weird thing about about that whole episode is that I think a lot of people know about. The, the steam tunnel story and the disappearance of, of Dallas Egbert. And I think a lot of us were dimly aware of it at the time, if we were old enough and it's, it's in the folk memory of the hobby. And it was a huge media event at the time. The, the newspapers are really, really interested. But if you ask people well, what actually happened, mm. most people, most people have got no idea. Like, did he? Well, yeah. No, what did happen? And we have this sense that Dungeons and Dragons are you know, it's perfectly safe. But was he, you know, was he, did he ever play Dungeons and Dragons? Did he, did he disappear? Did he survive? Did he die? Nobody knows. Well, I mean, <laughs> my, I know, and it is known, but most people don't remember any of the details of the story. They just remember there was this, there was this big fuss because this kid disappeared and maybe Dungeons and Dragons was to blame. And interestingly, it was a huge boost for Dungeons and Dragons. It really, from a hobby that, people just hadn't barely heard of to something really mainstream. So Dungeons and Dragons was in E.T. as being this cool new thing that kids played. E.T. was about three years later. Um, it really transformed the prospects of the hobby, um, albeit in a very sad way. Yeah, and I think um, people uh, in, the, in the folk memory uh, remember elements of mazes and monsters and that gets conflated with it doesn't it as well yeah absolutely i mean mazes and monsters uh tom hanks completely loses his mind um i mean i've not seen the film i've, I've, you know, I've read the synopsis so i've heard i've heard extracts i forgive me for never having actually watched mazes <laughs> and monsters but um i think a, a lot of people have the sense that mazes and monsters was a sort of uh was loosely based on Mm. On, on what happened to Dallas Egbert. But there's absolutely no, mm. no connection at all. I mean, it was based on a novel which was inspired by the sort of weird fantasy of what might have happened to Dallas Egbert. But actually, the, the connection between the two is, is I mean, well, there's, no, there's no connection. I mean, other than there's a role-playing game and, and something bad happens to a teenager. Yeah, that's, even that is possibly overstretching the connection. So let's uh, talk about your everything. And I don't think this will come as much surprise to people, right? the the game that means everything to you and uh, the role-playing experience that means everything to you. 
Yeah. So that I mean, the the role playing experience that means everything to me is is playing in legend. This this world that was created by Dave Morris and Oliver Johnson, uh, and I was I was very very into it before I met them. Um, I think I maybe slightly had to hide just how into it I was because I think they probably would have been slightly scared. Um, and I've played it using different role playing systems. The actual system doesn't matter so much. So at first um, I'd play it using Dragon Warriors as a system and it works perfectly well, but it, sh- it shows its age. Then I switched to GURPS uh, and yeah, more recently we've been experimenting with, with Jewel Spider, but uh, there was, I mean, there was one game I played. So we started when I was a first year at university in 1992 um, and I vaguely had the sense, I seem to remember that Legend was set in 993, like the books were set in the year 993. So I thought, oh, 1992, 993, um, that kind of works. And the world comes to an end in the year 1000, of course. So I had in mind that it, when we hit the year 2000, the, there'd be some, some apocalyptic event. And so this game ran for, uh, for seven years. Uh, and the characters got more and more involved and it started small and, you know, in a classic role-playing format, we get more and more tangled up in the affairs of the world, more and more powerful, more and more pivotal uh, in this, this coming apocalypse and their attempts to prevent it. Uh, but I feel um, since then, we've just been doing endless prequels or explorations. It's like the Marvel Universe. You just go, okay, well, we've seen it from this character's point of view. Let's go back and we'll have a different group of people who, uh, who've got different interests and different focuses. And, um, yeah, every Christmas we, uh, we tend to play a game uh, with a group of characters, mercenaries called the Iron Men. And in a way, it's, it's become a bit of a pastiche. It's sort of <laughs> because as you get over and over again, every Christmas, it's a new Christmas and there's some new, new kind of plot to ruin Christmas, only it's medieval Christmas, and the Iron Men step in and, and fix it and see you again next year. <laughs> so in a way, it's, it's slightly ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, people are just like, well, let's do that again. You know, we want, a, we want a Christmas special. It wouldn't be Christmas without a Christmas special. And the Christmas special that most people want is, um, is the Iron Men save Christmas one way or another. So yeah, it's great fun. And what what is so enduring about the uh, setting of uh, legend? Is it is it something to do with um, British folk memory and that sense of nostalgia? Um, in, in the when we were talking about it, we said things like um, you know it, it has echoes of Robin of Sherwood and uh, mm. even Rupert the Bear. You know the way that those images of uh, trees and the uh, English countryside. Yeah, it's very very much what Robin of Sherwood. Um, and presumably Dave, Robin Sherwood was an influence on Dave. I think it, it must have come out a year or two before Dragon Warrior was, was published. There's some, it hits a sweet spot. It's, it's just off the real medieval history of the world. Mm. The, the, and I, I think this must have been deliberate, but maybe it was just a brilliant accident. Like there's a, if you look at a map of legend, there's the thing that looks like the British Isles, um, but it's not quite the British Isles. So it doesn't have the island of Ireland. Instead, that bit is kind of like Wales and Ireland together. And, but it's got a sort of Viking bit and it's got a sort of Siberia bit. 
And it's got a bit that's, you know, there's sort of the Spain, Germany, France, sort of, but not quite, Mediterranean, not quite. It's all just a bit off. And the the religion is is like Christianity, but not quite. There's a there's an Islamic faith, but not quite. And it just gives you all those footholds. You need all, all those cultural references. People aren't having to learn a whole load of stuff off by heart um, and be completely confused because the, you know, the religious structure of the universe is completely different or the, the geography is completely different. You, you kind of know what it's like, but yet at the same time, none of it is actually medieval history. Uh, and so you can, you can change anything you want. And there's, there's something about that, that that works really, really well. You know, you you're instantly, if I want to run a game in Kraft, which is the sort of Russia, uh, Siberia kind of place, I read some Russian folk tales. Um, but Kraft isn't Russia, and it's got its own history and it's got its own character. So that I think is 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 part of the magic. But yes, the the scenarios and the the little examples that Dave and Oliver created. They're very rich with this, with this sort of quite dark, quite whimsical uh, folklore. It's hard to put your finger on exactly why it's so um, it's so evocative. But I mean, one of my favourite ga- scenarios in the original books, there's um, an assassination attempt on the the liege lord of the characters. They chase this assassin. The assassin runs it into a, an, an old barrow and in the barrow he's set up that there'll be a there'll be an astral gate that'll take him to safety he's got this sort this, this agreement with the sorcerer actually the sorcerer's double-crossed him um not that that's particularly central to the plot but you're uh when you break into the 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 barrow you realize the barrow has been taken over by goblins and the goblins have blocked the access to the astral gate and so there's this assassin in the barrow trying to unblock the astral gate and escape. There are the goblins and there are the players and they're all there. They're all kind of fighting each other. And this is incredibly tactically interesting. And yet at the same time, the thing that I really remember of that is the description of chasing after this guy over the frost and spotting. There's just a little hand mark he leaves on a, on a tree trunk and his hand has just melted the frost and that's how you know where he is. So just these those poetic observations of, of all the detail, yet at the same time, it's, it's just a great kind of Mexican standoff of a scenario. And and give us a sense of what those um, game sessions are like, because I know um, uh, Ralph Lovegrove from Victorplasm, uh, people know, uh, actually um, came in the end for your uh, games master for one of your groups and he said that it was an unusual experience uh, uh, because because of the way that the players were were, were playing around with the ideas so yeah what, what's the ethos of the group um so yeah yeah i remember that we were all uh online at the time it was it was it was uh you know mid-lockdown and um so that there's that additional barrier to understanding when you've got a new GM coming in, but it was, it was a powered by the apocalypse game um, that I think we, I think it was powered by the apocalypse. Anyway, it was a system that we were, it was quite new wave. We're all old school. We didn't really understand quite how it was all supposed to fit together, but it was call of Cthulhu ish. I think it was a Cthulhu hack. Yeah. That was what it was. Cthulhu hack. Is it Cthulhu dark? Is it that one? 
Um, maybe, maybe, okay. maybe. It what, was, one it, of those. It was, yeah. it was super simple. You know, you're just rolling a couple of dice for your effect. Um, but I think what what Ralph found bizarre was that that we completely failed to engage with the plot. Um, <laughs> but of course, that's always how it seems to the GM. Like the players aren't thinking, "I'm not engaging with the plot." We thought we, you know, we we all thought it was great. We we had a great time. There was some really really eerie, spooky things. There was a there's a house and you could see all the hand marks of people on the inside of the house, the hand marks, a lot of them were children, even their marks on the inside of the windows. And they're like, oh, what's, what's going on in that house? Who, who are those children? Oh, this is so creepy and Thulu-esque. It was brilliant. But Ralph was like, you guys just ignored everything and just did your own thing. So, yeah, I know it, it didn't. When I was playing it, I did not think to myself oh, we're really riding a co- coach and horses through this game. I, it didn't seem that way to me at all. Yeah. Um, but the, the players in that group, they're very, uh, they're great players. People will grab a character concept and they'll run with it. And there's, there is no sense, I have to say, of, oh, well, this is what we're supposed to do. Like, we're obviously supposed to take the, the, the guy in the bar who gives us the quest. You know, it, it's the kind, of, the kind of group where, people will find something more interesting to do than take the quest from the guy in the bar. Um, but they're not just going to kill the guy in the bar because they can kill the guy in the bar. It's all, it's driven by, by character. Um, and the fun thing about that is of course you can just improvise. Mm-hmm. And as a GM, you're probably best off throwing some ideas into the mix and seeing what happens. Um, I, I, there's a cautionary tales uh, about Martin Luther King which, uh, and Gerald Ratner a guy who destroyed his jewellery empire with a, an ill-considered speech. And I talk about the speeches of these two guys, of Charles Ratner and Martin Luther King, and I talk about the power and the risks of improvisation. And actually, I think improvisation in a game is, is really important. It's very, very easy to overplan. Uh, and, and actually, if you've got a, a halfway decent group of players, you should be spending more time listening to what's going on, looking for what's interesting and what they're saying, and, and feeding that. And um, when you appeared on Ralph's podcast on uh, Fictoplasm, you were talking about Leoness yeah. and uh, Jack Vance. And uh, it, it's great that you, it, you make a remark about uh, landlords in Leoness, how they always have a backstory and they're always, uh, there's always the source of trouble. And that's actually made its way into the new Mithras game as a result yeah. of you making that comment. So. Yeah, I mean, Leoness is... Yeah, people who haven't read Leoness, they should read Leoness. There's, um, uh, I have to say, possibly a trigger warning for the first 50 pages because it's a very sad, sad story. And um, some of the people you think are protagonists, things don't go well for them. Um, but it is a wonderful, wonderful uh, creation that it's got the, the epic scope of a sort of Lord of the Rings or something like that, possibly slightly more Game of Thrones. But it, you know, it roams all over this fantasy world, cast of thousands. And yet one of the joys of it is the way that Vance will create uh, something really, really interesting, a little encounter with an innkeeper or, I mean, a, a bandit on the road. And he'll create, he'll bring so much joy and pleasure out of that encounter. The language, the imagination, the stuff that's hinted at and never, never fully explained. And, and then he'll move on. 
So there's there's that relentless creativity. There's that sense that there shouldn't be any filler. Like everything you do um, should either be driving the plot or should be just a fascinating diversion. Uh, that's I mean it's a it's a very very gameable approach uh, to role playing, and I think it's probably not a surprise that Vance inspired uh, Gygax in the first place. Some of Vance's earlier work, the the, the Dying Earth stuff. Um, yeah, I, I love it. I love it, but. I particularly love the descriptions of food. It, this is now absolutely standard in a in a game of legend. It's not a, not a game in legend unless you walk into a bar and you start specifying in exhaustive detail the way that you'll have uh, jellied oysters and uh, uh, a pie with a tasty relish of leeks on the side. Uh, also, uh, a collation of cold hams and smoked fish. And of course, the innkeeper may or may not have this kind of thing. But if you're not coming in with some food attitude, you're not properly playing legend. That's and that's that's a very Vance Leoness influence. Yes, yeah. And in the in the new game, they've actually got tables where you can generate uh, the, the food, and and uh, that is it's always great fun uh, do, doing that. Also, got like a, a wandering meals table. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great. Well, I mean, I I, I favour making it up as you go along, but. No, the table. I, I need to. I need to. I haven't looked at the Mithras game. It's, it seems that it's something I should be paying attention to because I do love the Vance. Yeah, well, it, it, um, it, Loz actually acknowledges your inspiration for the landlord's uh, element of it. So uh, I'm honoured. I'm absolutely honoured. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I always say that as well about uh, Leoness. Just um, power through the uh, the, the, the uh, initial. 50 pages because it, it, it is quite difficult isn't it it's quite a difficult it lays the groundwork and it is quite sad and cruel um that yeah. that, that, that bit of it isn't it yeah i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of cruelty in vance but it's usually cruelty to characters you don't care very much about um you know basically the npcs are being treated cruelly but um but yeah something really unfair and unpleasant happens to uh, to a very sympathetic character quite early on, and in a way, it motivates. Like in the end, the, yeah. the fact that this terrible thing happened at the beginning makes the end very satisfying. Uh, you feel it's not just oh, there's the spooky dark lord who who's doing dark things and must be stopped doing dark things. It's like King Casimir, who's an absolute bastard <laughs> because of what he did right at the beginning, and God. I really want to see that guy defeated, and it feels much more personal and much more visceral. Yeah, but yeah, it's 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 terrific. But the pacing is important. I do yeah. the more the more I play, uh, more I play, the more attention I I try to give to pacing and the sense of uh, well, I mean, if you think about a, a four hour game, you know, it might you wouldn't think anything particularly of playing a four hour game. That's sort of pretty standard. But a four hour movie is a long movie. Mm. I saw the new Justice League movie. It's really, really long. Um, so you know, you should you know, you've got to be driving the action as a, as a GM and not. I mean, by all means, make stuff up, um, and and put in these diversions to the plot. But the diversions have got to be fast moving and interesting, and they they always are in advance. Yes, yes, and uh, it, I think uh, it, you know, talk about legend. I think the way that he. Um, uh, portrays the fey culture as well is is good um because it's so unexpected and so um so unusual 
to, to have that alongside the kind of quasi-medieval uh, stuff. Yeah. yeah, and you really get a sense that they, they have got their own culture. Um, they're very whimsical. Um, one of the, there's a fae character who, um, who is taught, she's half fae, but her mother, who, who is a fairy, teaches her the imp spring twinkle toe, which is a sort of, you just kind of, you just make this noise and you do this with your thumb and then you hiss like this. And, uh, and if you want more effects, simply apply it at triple force. Um, and it's, it's, you know, there's no further explanation, but it works well. But they, you know, there's, there's one point where somebody's, um, somebody's eyes are, are filled with bees and dark honey as a curse. This is amazing. Yeah. And they, you can, and you know, and he can't see because his eyes are full of bees and dark honey. And, uh, and uh, another point where someone is um, treated as, uh, regarded as having disrespected the, the fairies. And so he's just hurled a thousand miles and lands in, you know, lands on the beach, the other end of, of Leoness and has just has to make his way home from there. And that basically takes the plot of most of the book for, for him <laughs> to get home. Um, and it's just because he annoyed the fairy king. Uh, it's re- really good. It's well worth a read if you haven't encountered it. Well, well, Tim, we're uh, coming up to uh, the hour mark. So I want to say thank you very much for taking part in, in, the, uh, in the interview. It's uh, great to have you on the podcast. Well, it's a tremendous honour. I feel I don't fully deserve it because uh, <laughs> I, just, I just make stuff about games rather than actually being a proper game designer. But uh, I, you know, I love the podcast and uh, thank you for letting me be part of it. It's really kind of you. Oh, thank you. And uh, I want to say uh, thank you to everybody who's attended uh, Virtual Grog Meet uh, this weekend and to the Games Masters and uh, players who made it possible. Thank you very much and adios, amigos. Hey. Thank you very much. I don't, I, I don't have professional sound design, so... <laughs> you don't need it. You've got proper, proper Zoom applause. You don't need sound design. <laughs>